The sermon text for today is found in Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. You can find this passage in the Blue Pew Bible on page 1538. Listen as I read God's word. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. You unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, everything is possible for one who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the impure spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is John. I get to serve as the lead pastor here at Elmwood, and we are in the midst of a message series in the book of Mark. As we come to look at this passage this morning, I want to invite you to join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to hear God's word. Shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. This morning, God, we give you thanks that we belong to you. We give you thanks that you are our good shepherd and that you love us, that you care about us, and that you lead us and you guide us. And we pray as we look at this passage today that you would do just that, that your spirit would be present with us and among us in a unique and powerful way, and that you would 
Help us to see this passage and understand it. Not just for the sake of understanding it, but so that we would know you. We want to encounter Jesus this morning. And so we ask in the power of your spirit that you would give us that privilege today. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. In order to function in the world, we have to be people of faith. I'm not talking just about us who consider ourselves followers of Jesus. All people exercise faith at all times. Every time we get into a vehicle, whether you are the one driving or whether you are a passenger riding with someone else, every time we get into a motor vehicle, we are living by faith that other people on the road or the person who's driving you is going to make wise choices, that they are going to obey the traffic laws, and that the other people who are on the road around you are not going to do things that would endanger your life. So we all live with faith in that moment. Every time we vote for any sort of politician at any level of government, whether school board or city council or uh, governor or Congress or Senate or president, whoever, we are exercising a lot of faith that that person who is running on a certain set of values, a certain set of ideals, is going to actually govern that way once they get into that position. And we know that they always do, right? All the time. (laughs) So voting is an act of faith. Uh, With the explosion of media resources that are available now today and the number of media sources that are out there, it's become more apparent to me than ever that watching or reading the news is an act of faith. We are not the ones out there, you know, on the beat, interviewing people and writing stories and, you know, hearing stories and doing the investigative journalism thing, we are trusting. We are exercising faith that the people who are out there doing that are doing it well and that they are not just asking questions, but they are asking good questions and they are asking hard questions. And then they are going to report what they are seeing and hearing in a way that is honest and fair and not like tied to like one specific agenda or narrative, right? So every time we pick up the newspaper or, you know, read something online or wherever we get our news, we are acting in faith that that person is providing us with something of value. And that's what we do. We exercise faith in that moment. Uh, You may be familiar with uh, something called acting in good faith. This is usually as it relates to uh, negotiations or like some sort of deal where basically it means that there's two parties that come together in negotiation and negotiating in good faith means that we just assume that the other person is acting with honesty and that that other person is acting with integrity and that their intentions are good and that they are not trying to take advantage of us. And that cuts both ways, right? That's what it means to, to act in good faith. So in order to function in the world, Every single one of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus and every single one of us, uh, every single person we might encounter in the world, whether they're a follower of Jesus or not, is a person who lives every single day, all the time, by faith. We literally cannot function in the world without having faith in people, in structures, in systems, in all sorts of things. We are people of faith. And if you weren't aware of this already, uh, faith is kind of a big deal for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, right? In fact, uh, 
many times Christians or followers of Jesus are called people of faith because it's so central to who we are and it's central to our relationship with God. Of course, the Bible has a lot to say about the subject of faith. And if we had time, we could trace all of that today. Uh, We only have time to look at what's in this passage. But as we look at this passage, we're going to see that faith is the main theme that runs throughout these interactions that Jesus has. We see Jesus interacting with two different people, with uh, his group of nine disciples. And we see Jesus interacting with the father of this demonized boy. And as we do, we're going to see this theme of faith run through there. And we're going to look at this and we're going to see an answer to the question, what does true faith look like? Because we want to be able to not just know what faith is, we want to be able to know what it looks like when we see it so that we can continue to cultivate lives of faith the way that God wants for us. And so we're going to look at this passage and we're going to sort of uh, just explore what's here and kick around that question. What does it look like for us to live as people of faith? So let's first look at this interaction between Jesus and his nine disciples. And as we do, sort of, here's, here's what we're going to see in this interaction, is we're going to see the futility of kingdom work in our own strength. The absolute, total futility and uselessness of attempting kingdom work in our own strength and with our own resources. So Jesus, we see, we're picking up the story here, as Jesus comes down off the mountain What we looked at last week was that Jesus took three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, and went up on top of a mountain where he was transfigured, meaning his divine glory was revealed to them. And after what was like literally a mountaintop experience, they come down off of the mountain and they walk right into the middle of an argument. And the argument is between Jesus and the religious leaders and probably to some degree this father of this demonized boy. So the argument that Jesus walks into with these three disciples was sparked by the failure of the disciples to cast out the demon from this this boy. And so that's what sparked this whole thing. So Jesus and his disciples come down off the mountain where he was transfigured. And then in verse 16, Jesus uh, walks into this argument and is like, so uh, what are we arguing about? And immediately the boy's father jumps in. Remember verse 17 says, teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So the argument is because The disciples were unable to cast out this demon. And what we know from reading the book of Mark is that the religious leaders are following Jesus and his disciples around, and they are looking for any and every opportunity to to find a chink in the armor, as it were. They're looking for every reason they can get their hands on to criticize Jesus, to discredit his ministry, and what better of an opportunity than when Jesus' own disciples claim the authority of Jesus, and then fail to drive out a demon, and they're there to just pounce on this moment. And so this, this argument breaks out, and uh, this isn't much of a spoiler alert because you heard the text read, but Jesus drove out the demon, and the boy was set free. After Jesus drives out this demon and the boy was set free, his disciples come to him, and they ask him, uh, so why couldn't we drive this demon out? And Jesus' answer is just very clear, it's very to the point, very succinct. He says, this kind can only come out 
by prayer. This is a very unusual, uh, surprising response from Jesus. This, this, this response of this can only come out through prayer is something that has caused lots of questions. People have uh, sort of uh, wondered about this. And the reason this is so unusual is because up until this point in the book of Mark, we've seen numerous occasions where Jesus has driven back the spiritual forces of darkness, where Jesus has driven out demons. Sometimes it's an individual demon. Sometimes it's like a horde of demons, like in chapter 5. So we've seen Jesus do this, and never to this point in the book of Mark, and nowhere else except right here, is there any connection between exorcism and prayer. We never see an instance of Jesus stopping to pray before he casts out a demon. Jesus simply speaks, and the demons, because of his authority as the Son of God, the demons must listen to him. But there's never a time where Jesus prayed before he cast out a demon. We see earlier in the book of Mark that Jesus gave his disciples the authority to drive out demons, earlier in chapter 6, but he never instructs them, okay, now what you got to do is you got to stop and pray first. So it, it just asks, brings up this question. Okay, well, why in the world is Jesus saying that? What does it mean when he says that this kind can only come out by prayer? Is he talking about like a, you know, a particularly resilient kind of demon? What in the world is he even talking about here? Uh, let me share with you my best attempt at understanding what's going on here. So when Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer, I don't think what Jesus is saying is, you know, if you would have just stopped and said a little prayer first, it would have worked. You know, if you just folded your hands and closed your eyes and bowed your head, if you would have just said a little prayer, this demon would have been cast out. I don't think that's what Jesus means when he says that it can only come out by prayer. What I think is that the word prayer here does not refer to a specific act of praying, but to prayer as an expression of complete reliance on God. He's not talking about a specific instance of prayer. He's talking about prayer itself more broadly as an expression of complete and utter dependence upon God for everything. He's talking about prayer more broadly as an act of faith. Because that's, that's what prayer is, is we bring our request to God in faith, entrusting those things to him. Right? So prayer being this act of faith, he's saying that they failed essentially, because they were attempting to do kingdom ministry in their own strength. I think that's what's happening here. They're attempting to do this in their own strength. They don't have faith. They're not relying on the power of God in that moment. What they're doing is they're relying on their own resources. They came to believe that the authority of Jesus was something that they now possess as if it's inherent to them. After all, they were given the authority of Jesus earlier in chapter 6 to drive out demons. And so they're probably thinking, yeah, Jesus gave us his authority, so now we have it. You know, just like we have it once and we've been given it and we can just use it whenever we want. They've come to believe somewhere along the way, right? Jesus did give them his authority, But in this moment, they are acting as if Jesus' authority belongs to them. And they're acting in their own resources. And that's why Jesus says, this kind can only come out through prayer. This kind can only come out, this, this casting out any demon 
can only be done in complete and total faith and reliance upon God, not your own resources, not your own strength. So that's what we see here is we see this picture of the futility of kingdom work in our own resources. And this gives us a uh, very clear negative example of faith (laughs) or an example of faithlessness. Because remember, uh, Jesus asked them, Jesus said to them, uh, which verse is it? He says in verse 19, you unbelieving generation. And then in in Matthew's recounting of the same set of events, the answer that Jesus gives is, The reason you couldn't cast it out is because you didn't have faith. So there's this connection between faith, a life of faith, and a life of prayer. And the disciples have not made this connection. They're not living in that connection. They're doing ministry in their own resources, and they fall flat on their face because of it. And so they provide us with this negative example. And what we can take away from this, as we look at their failures, we can see this. True faith looks like prayerful reliance on God for all things. Prayerful reliance on God for all things. Like the disciples, it's possible for us to go about ministry and life in our own resources. It's possible for us to go about life and ministry thinking or acting as if any authority that we have is somehow inherent to us instead of entirely derived moment by moment through communion with Jesus. We too can fall into the same trap that we see them in here. And so what we have to do is we have to cultivate a life of reliance on God for all things. And that prayerful reliance is going to be characterized by both confidence and humility. Okay, we are going to, and we should have these things like in equal proportion, right? As we cultivate a life of prayerful reliance, it's going to look like we grow in confidence. Because Jesus has indeed given us He's given us the presence and the power of his spirit. Jesus has given us the presence and power of the Holy Spirit to equip and empower us for a life of kingdom fruitfulness. Jesus desires that we would live in obedience to him and we would be fruitful people for his kingdom. And so Jesus has commissioned each of us, has given us the power of the spirit and sent us out into the unique ministries that we all have. We all go out into the places where we live and work and learn and play, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, everywhere. And there are unique ministries that God has for us. He has equipped and empowered us and given us everything we need to be successful and to be fruitful in those areas where he has placed us. So yes, we ought to live with an incredible amount of confidence because God has given us the gift of the power of his spirit, and at the very same time, we live with an incredible amount of humility because we remember the power does not come from us. We are not the source of the power. We are not the source of the kingdom fruitfulness. It is entirely God's power working through us that accomplishes anything of lasting value. And so we live with that, with that humility, remembering Jesus' words when he said to his disciples, in John 15, he said, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? Completely dependent position. Without the vine, the branches die. He <laughs> says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do some things. No, that's not what he said. <laughs> you can do many things. No. You can do nothing 
nothing of lasting significant spiritual value can ever be accomplished apart from the power of God's spirit working in and through us. And so we cultivate this life of prayerful reliance on God for all things. And it means that we're going to be people of both confidence and humility as we do so. So let's turn to this interaction between Jesus and this father of the demonized boy. And as we look at this interaction, what we see is we see the act of straining for faith in impossible circumstances. Straining for faith in the face of impossible, hopeless circumstances. So the father that we meet in this story came to Jesus as an act of desperation. He came to Jesus because his son was not just ill, his son was demonized. We don't know how old his son was, but when Jesus, when he tells Jesus that he's been this way since childhood, it gives us some indication that like maybe he's a teenage boy, maybe he's older than that, maybe he can never move out of, you know, his parents' household, he's going to be dependent forever because of this condition. We don't know how old he is, but he's been terrorized by demons for a long period of time. And it's a scary and horrifying thing to think about. He tells Jesus exactly what it's like. He says that the spirit has robbed him of his speech, that it seizes him and throws him on the ground. So it physically harms his son. We see that his son then foams at the mouth and gnashes his teeth and he becomes rigid. And later he tells Jesus that it, it, it tries to kill him by throwing his son into fire, throwing his son into water. And it's just horrible picture of this ongoing state of terror, being terrorized and demonized. And this father and the son have been living with this for we don't know how long. You don't have to be a parent to empathize with what this man, with, with the constant, the exhaustion of the constant state of vigilance that this father must have been in. Because he's wondering, every time I turn my back, if I take my eye off him just for a moment, is that going to be when he's thrown into the water again? Is that when he's going to be thrown into a fire again? And what if I'm too far away? And so you live with the constant state of heightened awareness. And your brain is just constantly on wondering about is what's going to happen in the next moment. And so there's this exhaustion that, that you don't have to be a parent to understand or to empathize with that. You don't have to be a parent to empathize with the continual pain of watching someone you love experience things that are beyond your control. And that's exactly what this father is experiencing. He brings his son to Jesus and the disciples fail to cast out this demon. And I think that just adds to the pain that this father feels. So Jesus asked this man, how long has he been like this? And as the father responds, Jesus picks up a tinge of doubt in the father's voice. Jesus asked him in verse 21 how long he'd been like this. In verse 22, the father says, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. So Jesus hears some shakiness of faith in this man's voice. He hears this tinge of doubt and It's interesting because what we see here with this father is the exact opposite of what we see elsewhere in the book of Mark. So all the way back in chapter, let me just back up for a second. If Jesus is going to heal someone, or if Jesus is going to drive out a demon, he has to have both willingness and ability. 
right? <laughs> he has to be both willing and able to drive out a demon or to heal someone. And so earlier in Mark, there's this uh, man who has a condition called leprosy. He comes to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So in that case, the man with leprosy is not necessarily questioning Jesus' power or his ability to heal. He's questioning Jesus' heart. Are you willing? Do you want to heal me? And we see the exact opposite here with this father, who says, in a more literal translation, says, if you are able to do anything, if you can, if you are powerful enough to do anything, please help. And you hear him saying, you know, if you can do just anything, anything will help. And so Jesus picks up this tinge of doubt in his voice. And I think, here's where I think the doubt came from. I imagine this man bringing his son to Jesus. And he runs into Jesus' nine disciples who are left, you know, at the bottom of the mountain. And this man comes and says, hey, I brought my son to be, uh, to be healed or to be exercised by, uh, by Jesus. To have this demon cast out. And the disciples say, like, hey, he's, uh, he's up on the mountain right now with some of his other disciples, but he'll be back shortly. And this, this father was like, okay, that's fine, I'll wait. <laughs> you know, like, I, I've come all this way, and my son is in this desperate condition. Jesus can heal him? Like, sure, I'll wait. And then the disciples say, oh, no, no, there's no need to wait. We have the authority of Jesus. We can drive this demon out of your son. And in their arrogance... And in their presumptiveness, they, in their own strength, seek to drive out this demon, and it completely fails. And so now this father is sitting there saying, okay, uh, Jesus gave his authority to these disciples, and they didn't have the ability to cast out this demon. So now he's questioning the authority of Jesus himself, right? There's doubt, there's questions that are caused in his mind because of the failure of these disciples, and then, at the, you know, during which they claim to have the authority of Jesus. And so this father's in this place of like, I've heard all these things about Jesus. I've maybe seen Jesus do things personally. I, I know that he can heal, uh, but, he, but he's sort of wrestling with this. And so what we see is that inside of this man is the coexistence of both faith and doubt. Inside of this father is the coexistence, the cohabitation of belief and unbelief. All at the same time. And Jesus says to him, in verse 23, if you can? What do you mean, if you can? (laughs) If you can, Jesus says, everything is possible for the one who believes. And then the father just blurts out. Right, this isn't like a well thought through thing. He just blurts out, I believe, help my unbelief. And so we see, in real time, this father straining for faith in the midst of circumstances that seem hopeless and impossible. He's struggling to believe. He's saying, I I do believe, and also, help my unbelief. Because I'm questioning, because I'm doubting. So we see this example of straining for faith in the face of impossible circumstances. And what we can take away from this is this true faith looks like determined trust of God in all things. So we saw with the disciples that true faith looks like prayerful reliance on God for all things. 
And here we see that true faith looks like determined trust of God in all things. Uh, Thankfully, many of us will never experience anything like what this father did. And yet we all will face all kinds of situations that leave us straining for faith in the face of things that seem hopeless or impossible. Every single one of us will. I think it's easy to look at this passage and to think that there are two failures of faith. You know, the disciples are like clearly, obviously, like just blew it. (laughs) That's what they do. There's a failure of faith. And then it's like, well, yeah, and this father failed too. Because he's like, well, I don't have enough faith. So Jesus, you got to help me have more faith. And so sometimes we can look at this and say, well, there's two examples of a failure of faith. I don't think that's the case. The disciples are given to us as a negative example. And the father is not given to us as an example of what we should not do. This father is given to us as an example of what we ought to do. The father gives us a realistic picture of what discipleship to Jesus will look like for all of us until we stand in new creation. Until we see Jesus face to face and have renewed bodies and renewed minds and renewed hearts and our world is made new, until that moment, every single one of us will live all the time for the entirety of our discipleship to Jesus with this mixture of both belief and unbelief inside of us. And so this father is not given to us as a negative example because he struggled to believe. He's given to us as a positive example because he struggled to believe. He's striving for faith in the midst of hopeless circumstances. He's given to us as as an example of determined and persistent faith in the face of things that look completely and utterly impossible. Now, in this particular case, it was related to his son and Jesus' ability to cast out this demon from his son. But we'll face all sorts of different things that leave us straining for faith in the midst of hopeless circumstances. So maybe uh, you're here this morning and there's some deep area of pain that you're walking through. Maybe there's difficult, painful circumstances. Maybe it's a relationship. Maybe it's a a financial situation. Maybe it's something with your vocation or your children. There's some thing that you're walking through that's deeply painful emotionally, psychologically. Maybe you're facing a medical diagnosis or just the effects of old age. Maybe you are experiencing the unraveling of a relationship in your life and you're looking at all this difficulty and all the pain you're experiencing, and you're saying, is there even a purpose to this? What possibly could be the purpose for all this? And so in that moment, you're having to, to strain for faith, right? You're having to say, I believe that God has a purpose for me in all of my difficulty, in all of my suffering, and I'm struggling to believe that. I know in my head, and yet my heart is just screaming at me, saying, there is no purpose in this. And so in that moment, we strive and like the father should be the kind of people who look at those circumstances and say, I believe, help my unbelief. Maybe you're here and you feel distant from God. Maybe you feel like your relationship with God hasn't been the way that you've wanted it to be for a very long time. And you're feeling distant and you're not, you know, you're not like questioning God's existence. (laughs) 
But in his absence, there, there are questions that arise, there are doubts that arise about his character and his nature and his goodness. And would God let this happen to me if, if, if he really was good? And there's all these things that come up in the midst of the absence of God in our lives. And that, again, is another one of those instances where we have to say, I, I believe. I know what's true. Help my unbelief. Or maybe for you, there's uh, life choices that you're facing. Maybe with your vocation or your education or uh, life choices related to things like relationships or marriage. There's decisions. There's, there's maybe temptations that you face. And in all of those things, you say, okay, I know what God says I should do. I know what kind of person I should be as I pursue these things. And yet, if I'm honest, I just want to do what I want to do. Right? I just want to do what's fun in the moment. I just want to do what feels good. I just want to do what is like the path of least resistance. If I'm honest, that's what I want to do. I know God has given me all of his instruction for my good and flourishing, and I still functionally struggle to believe that that's what I should do. And so that's another example where, like this father, we have to be the kind of people that cultivate a, a kind of trust that says, I believe Help my unbelief. And there's all sorts of other examples of things just like this. But this is what we do, is we cultivate determined trust of God in all things. And the way that we cultivate trust, the way that we cultivate trust is by looking to Jesus. We cultivate trust by looking to Jesus and seeing God himself taking on human flesh and joining us in our humanity. We see God himself not staying distant or at arm's length from us in our brokenness and the brokenness of our world, but taking on human flesh, joining us in our humanity, and suffering and dying on a Roman torture device for us so that we could be set free from our sin. And so we see this picture We look to the cross and we see this clear picture that God can take even things like suffering and he can make those things turn out for our ultimate good. And so we look at our circumstances and we say, okay, I know that my suffering, I know that my pain, it can't mean God doesn't love me. It can't mean that God has abandoned me because he's already proved that he does love me. He's taken on human flesh and suffered and died for me. And so that helps us cultivate faith in the midst of circumstances uh, that would seem very difficult. We look to the cross and we see the lengths to which God was willing to go in order to redeem us, to set us free from our sin. We see that and so we know that when God gives us his instruction... Although his instruction may, you know, prick us at points where we say, I just don't want to do it that way. I want to do what's right in my own eyes. Even though we may feel that way, over time, true faith means looking to the cross and seeing how God can take suffering and make it turn out for our good. It means looking to his instruction and saying, you know, if I'm honest, I just don't want to do this, but I know it's good. And so I'm going to cultivate a heart that desires and loves to do what God wants me to do because it's for my good and flourishing. And so this is how we cultivate this life of Resilient faith. It's how we cultivate a life of determined trust of God in all things. We look to Jesus. 
And as we come to the communion table today, as we do each week, this is, this is why we do this every single week. We come to the communion table because every single week, there is nothing we need more than Jesus. There's nothing we need to hear more every single week then you are broken and flawed and God loves you and has made a way for your sin to be forgiven and he has given you new life. There's nothing we need to hear more than that. And so we come every week and we can be reminded of what God has done. And as we come to the communion table today, I want to invite you to take uh, just a few moments of silence for confession and reflection. And today we are, for the prayer of confession, we are actually going to confess uh, the prayer that you hear us Uh, use each week, we're going to pray that prayer of confession together. So we're all going to say this together this morning. So I'm just going to leave a few moments of silence for you, and then we will all confess together uh, our sin, followed by the confession of the gospel. So take a few moments of silence for confession and reflection.